Would you like to ask a question right at this particular time? Would you like to do that? Yeah, Macho Man, I was wondering if anyone's told you where I could see Goblins and Growlers and Quid Pro Roll this summer. I was going to tell you about it, but Ricky the Dragon Steamboat said you just weren't mature enough to handle it. That's a lie, and that's enough to get me hot. Okay, okay, Macho Man, I'll tell you. Yeah. Goblins and Growlers and Quid Pro Roll are going to be at Queen City Anime Con in Charlotte, North Carolina, August 5th through 7th. Come hang out in the tabletop room, visit us on panels, and catch at least one of the live stage shows we'll be doing. We'll also be there with our merch booth. Wow, man, freaked out! That's right. Remember, it's a vax and mask mandatory event, so grab your N95s and your vaccination records and buy your ticket at QueenCityAnimeCon.com. Hey, Macho, are you planning on doing any cosplay while you're there? Man, I'll tell you something right now. A man in my position cannot be bored to look ridiculous at any time. When that comes from me, that says something. Okay, okay, that's fine. I'll give you a Goblins and Growlers t-shirt you can wear while you're there. Is that okay? I hope that makes up for the rough start we had at the beginning of this. I'm real sorry about that. Apology accepted. All right, thanks, Macho. Now let's kick back and listen to this new episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. Very good. Okay, very good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Goblins and Growlers podcast. I'm your host, Josh Maltby, at BlackCloakDM on Twitter. I'm your other host, uh, Brandon, at Way of Brandalore on Twitter. Josh trying to steal all the glory for himself. <laughs> I'm our only host. Brandon is our other only host. Uh, for those of you watching on video, I apologize uh, at my hovel of a background. It's also like 100 <laughs> degrees in here, so I'm really suffering for the art tonight. That's the podcaster life, baby. Oh, yeah. A hundred degree recording studio. Let's go. No air conditioning, no heat. Just whatever the outside temperature is, that's basically what you're dealing with. <laughs> well, plus whatever warmth radiates off of your computing device. Yes. Uh, just started off by saying, uh, if uh, you're listening to the podcast and you haven't given us a five star review, why? Uh, please go ahead and do that. Also, uh, if you want to yell at us, you can uh, join the conversation at Discord at bit.ly slash goblin discord so jump on there and holler at us and speaking of people hollering at us uh we have our very first correction that was uh that was brought to our attention the other day and it comes from uh snapshot one of the guys in the discord who's also somebody who comes to a lot of our events and everything he's sort of an og with goblins and growlers uh i guess in the Spelljammer 2E episode, which the time this airs will be a couple of episodes back, uh, we started talking about the uh, Aubrey Maturin uh, series of books by Patrick O'Brien. Uh, most people probably know those. Uh, if you don't read them, you know them from the movie Master and Commander with uh, Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany. Uh, I don't remember talking about it. I'm wondering if it was in some of the interview stuff with Jeff Grubb and he was talking about it. But... Anyway, we misrepresented uh, the number of books uh, from, uh, according to Snapshot, the Aubrey Maturin series has 20 published works and the film adapts combined elements from the first three books. Full disclosure, I saw Master and Commander, but I saw it many years ago, and I'm actually listening to the first book on audiobook based on, uh, I think, the mention of it from that episode. So I'm working my way through that. And I want to point out, too, that Snapshot followed this up with a very self-important gif of Gendo Ikari pushing his glasses up as he corrects us <laughs> on this. 
Uh, but anyway, thank you, Snapshot. Uh, we appreciate your kind attention to detail and accuracy, and it does my journalistic heart good to uh, correct ourselves in our reporting. Magnificent. <laughs> That's a fine that's a fine way to start off an episode. Here's something you did wrong that was stupid. <laughs> um look, we're we're big enough to admit when we did something wrong. <laughs> we're not so proud we can't take our own blame, you know? Even if we don't remember it. And maybe it wasn't even us that said anything. Who knows? I yeah, I super don't recall talking about Master and Commander at all, but I I'm taking snapshot at his word for it. All right. Well, we got a big show today, Josh, a real big show. Uh, you could say that our show is huge. You could even say our show is giant. <laughs> yes, today... I thought about keeping today... that joke going longer with a bunch of synonyms. <laughs> but as I said, it's like 95 degrees in here. So let's let's snap it up. <laughs> let's, let's keep it moving. Yeah. Uh, today we're going to talk briefly about the Unearthed Arcana that came out for us very recently, but I guess for y'all it'll be a few weeks ago. Even and, you uh, know, even with as plugged in as we tend to be with D&D stuff, sometimes they release these Unearthed Arcanas, and I have absolutely no idea that they came out. So I don't really feel bad if we're a few weeks behind the curve on this one. Well, and it's also, you know, part of the reason we do this show is so that we can have opinions about uh, TTRPG stuff. So this is something that we haven't weighed in on, and I suspect the people who tune into the show want to hear us weigh in, you know? Just a, a bit behind the curtain, Josh and I were on this call for a little while before we started recording, just sort of planning things out. And I said, hey, why don't, why don't let's divvy up the work. Why don't you read through the Unearthed Arcana, and I'll do a couple of other things. And he's reading through it, and he's like, I've got some opinions on this. I, I'm really, <laughs> I'm really trying to save this for when we record, but I've got some opinions on this. Uh, Brandon, knowing that I was having a little bit of a low energy evening, uh, wanted to get me fired up before we got this podcast going. And so he had me read this UA and boy, howdy, get me fired up. It did. How do you, how do you get, UAs how do you get, so often do. How do you get Josh fired up? You either give him caffeine or give him questionable game design. <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff in here. We are not going to explore all of it. There is five pages worth of content. It's a giant unearthed arcana. And it uh, <laughs> it also happens to be about giants. It's it's uh stature size is huge. It it possesses a 15 by 15 square area. <laughs> um so a couple a couple of things off the bat. This isn't just about giants. This is also about uh, primeval and also runecraft subclasses, which are pretty cool. Uh, but starting things out, we have a path of the giant barbarian. Now, some of this is very reasonable. Some of this makes perfect sense. Um, I think personally, as a GM, I would want my barbarian to pick a giant to theme themselves after. And then all of this would make sense through the lens of that giant. When Are you but talking about like a specific kind of giant? Or are you like, hey, barbarian, I really want you to pattern yourself after like build a giant or the iron giant. Uh, I was thinking a specific variety of giants, such as a cloud giant or a frost giant. 
Although having a barbarian that themes themselves after the Iron Giant would be really interesting because that is one gentle giant. More work for Vin Diesel. Exactly. It's all about giants and family. <laughs> uh, so a, f- a couple of things. The third level feature isn't anything to write home about. Like the giant power, I should say, feature isn't anything to write home about. Um, you get giant as a language or one other if you already have giant. And then you get druid or druidcraft or thaumaturgy as a cantrip with wisdom as the spellcasting ability. I haven't known a lot of barbarians with high wisdom scores, but I look forward to seeing more of them now. The other third level Path of the Giant feature allows you to rage and gain a couple of abilities. One is a Crushing Hurl, which allows you to have a any successful ranged attack with a thrown weapon using strength. You add your rage damage to the attack's damage roll. This seems very reasonable to me, very sensible. Uh, you also, your reach increases by five feet. And if you're smaller than large, you become large, um, unless there isn't room for that. And then you don't. I mean, is it like literally your body becoming larger or? Yes. I, That's what this is saying. I, when I read through it, I, the note that I wrote down was magic wand, make my monster grow. But I wasn't sure if it was just talking about like that, like like Rita Repulsa, or if it's supposed to, I don't know, make your aspect bigger. Or maybe you just stand up a little taller and you puff out your chest a little bit and you just have more of a presence. I, I mean, it says if you're smaller than large, you become large. So if you're a halfling, which is a small sized creature, and then you use this feature, you become a you double become a ling. large you become a, creature. A double ling. yes exactly exactly i think this is mostly for rules about you know the inability to throw people or lift them with your mind or things like that um there's a lot of there's a lot of spells and things some a few features i believe in other classes where you have the ability to lift people or grapple them or things like that where becoming a large size creature makes that more difficult. I think that's the intent here. Increasing reach by five feet, though, is kind of a lot, uh, because that's, as you are well aware, reach with weapons is a big thing. So is your feeling that they were trying to balance uh, positives with penalties there and maybe didn't quite get to that equilibrium? I think becoming a large size creature is a benefit enough in of itself. I think increasing reach by five feet is maybe a little much. But I haven't played the class. I can't say for sure exactly how the balance is. The thing I can say is probably a little bit broken. Uh, when you enter a rage at sixth level, you can infuse one weapon of your choice with the one of the following damage types, acid, cold, fire, thunder, or lightning. I think that's very reasonable. I think that's very doable. You, of course, that then becomes a magic weapon, deals a little extra damage, but also gains the throne property with a normal range of 20 feet and a long range of 60 feet. Now, you may recall, I literally just mentioned that anytime you throw a weapon, you gain rage damage bonus to that attack's damage roll. So you're basically making it so you can do the Conan the Barbarian, take the double-headed axe behind your back, throw it across the room, impale somebody on it, 
that that seems kind of cool with acid damage with acid damage right here's where i start to have a problem because all of that in of itself is like dang that's cool oh my gosh that's so cool and then because that's not enough they go if you throw the weapon it reappears in your hand the instant after it hits or misses a target are you thor is this thor feat (laughs) You, uh, it's literally the Path of the Blade Warlock feature. That is that is part of being a Pact of the Blade Warlock. Like what, uh, what, what, what makes that special now? Because apparently barbarians can do that as long as they like giant power. <laughs> you know, when we first started reading through this, I was like, okay, Josh is very measured. This is not at all like when we were reading the Travelers of the Multiverse. <laughs> On Earth Arcana, where you just started out like, you know what really grinds my gears? This. <laughs> this whole thing. Auto gnomes are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Auto gnomes were stupid. Uh, so, I look, this is a feature. I feel like they've got a lot of really great stuff in here. But I also feel like they were like, you know, here's one of four different things we could do with this that would be really cool. And then went, what if we did all of them. Jeremy, which one of these do you want to put in? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's it's our duty to just remind people at this point, like, it's all just playtest material. This is so they didn't yeah. have to make a decision and they're letting us help make the decision for them. Right. And I haven't played with this at a table. I'm literally reading it for the first time tonight. I... <sighs> The reason I get so cross with things like this is I can think of 18 different ways to abuse them as a system. And thing number one is you get that double-headed battle axe, that great axe, and you just whip it across the room at people all the time. And then you are a barbarian who gets damage reduction. You are uh, whipping your weapon across the room at people to hit them. So... If it's a range anything less than 20 feet, you're just like, well, you can't hit me, but I can sure as hell hit you. I mean, that's the benefit of being a barbarian. Uh, uh, That's too much. All the greatest hits. (laughs) Uh, There's a mighty impel feature at 10th level, which allows you to throw allies or enemies. Enemies do get a chance to resist this if they don't like it. You've got to toss me. I say you've got to toss me. Yes. Yes. Uh, So it's as a bonus action, well raging, you can choose one medium or smaller creature. So you will be a large creature. You can throw medium or smaller up to, uh, what was it? It was, I wanted to say 30 feet. Yes, move it to an unoccupied space you can see within 30 feet of yourself. So they mention that if the thrown creature isn't on a surface or liquid that can support it, they fall and take damage as normal. Uh, But it also says you can throw them to a space within 30 feet of yourself. So I don't know if the idea is you throw them and maybe the surface is unstable and falls. Or if their idea is you could throw them 30 feet in the air and then they take fall damage. Unless you throw a bird. Toss your Aarakocra buddy and throw him up in the air and then he can just fly away. 
like a paper plane. Exactly. I think there should be a summoning component to this where John Rice Davies appears and you get to <laughs> throw him into the melee. John, John Rice Davies appears and says, you'll have to toss me. <laughs> uh, level 14, you gain a little more damage. Your size increases to huge. You can use Mighty Impel for creatures that are large or smaller. And then on top of that, your reach becomes 10 feet instead of 5. Uh -huh. This is when so, you form the Barbarian Megazord. I guess. I mean, the thing that troubles me is that they don't say that like your reach is part of you growing too large. So if you really wanted to game this system, you would just climb into a box, stay medium size, have uh, stretch Armstrong arms that have 10 foot reach, and then all of the other abilities <laughs> and just not have to increase your size. It'll be fine. I really like the idea of stretch Armstrong arms, like your Dalsim from Street Fighter or something as a barbarian. <laughs> Dalsim that can throw large creatures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's the uh, that's the path of the giant barbarian. That's, that just just uh, seems which is that just seems all very ludicrous to me. It which it's literally the path of the giant barbarian. Uh, I I don't know. Like I like some of the stuff they're doing with it. I I get leery of some of the stuff they're doing with it because it seems like it's made to get weird really fast in combat. I don't mind combat that's interesting. But anytime you start putting stuff like reach onto characters as opposed to weapons, I'm like, mm, mm, I don't know. If you're a half giant and you take one of the uh, barbarian giant paths, do you get then like three quarters of a giant or do you get one and a half giants? Uh, I think you get one and a half giants because this is taking you from anything down to a tiny creature up to a giant. I want, I want an imp, like an abyssal plane imp that, uh, or is it an infernal plane? Infernal plane imp that is a tiny class creature that takes a path of the giant barbarian. And just like anger. And then it's just like massive, just huge all of a sudden. What I want is great. for two half giants to do the fusion dance from Dragon Ball Z <laughs> and become a whole giant and then <laughs> go like bar like barbarian giant path Super Saiyan and they would be like a two or three times giant and then they could train in the weighted clothes too so they'd be like a six times giant. Oh my! Their God. damage would be over nine thousand. I'm moving on. I'm moving on. Uh, the next subclass is the Druid Circle of the Primeval. The only part of this that affects the Druid themselves is the second level feature, which gives you the history, history skill proficiency and then makes it so that anytime you roll a history check, you can add a D4 to it. That's the only thing the druid gets out of this entire subclass because everything else gets poured into their primeval companion. That's because all their history knowledge is coming from the history channel. So they're only going to really benefit if, if they're doing checks related to aliens or Nazis. 
Oh no. This does this does feel a little bit like uh history channel in that they're like, yeah, we'll we'll do like keeper of old. There'll be some history involved in here, and then we're just gonna have this crazy critter, and we're just gonna talk about that for the rest of the day. So yeah, so it seems like they put a lot of the effort into this other second level feature. Uh very much so, yes, the primeval companion, which is kind of like a hunter pet, uh, but summoned magically for one use of your wild shape feature. And uh, up appears as... So you get to determine the appearance, but m they give examples such as raptors, saber-toothed tigers, or like ankylosaurus or woolly rhinos. Okay. Well... You're just you're just dangling all this low hanging fruit for Power Rangers references in front of me over and over again. <laughs> uh, the creature itself is moderately powerful. It looks like they'd have decent survivability. Uh, hit points ten plus five times your druid level. Speed of thirty feet. Dark vision sixty foot. Understands whatever language you speak. AC 13, which is not bad for like a familiar or a companion. AC 13 plus um, the, what is it? What was the PB? Your proficiency bonus. Oh, okay. That's actually really good so, then. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So that starts, that's at that level, that's a plus two, if I recall correctly for a 15 and then very soon thereafter becomes a 16. Um, you've got a basic strike attack, which is two plus proficiency bonus to hit. Um, you get one D eight plus proficiency bonus bludgeoning, piercing, or slashing, depending on what type of critter it is. Um, this, this feature, this reaction intercept attack is kind of cool where when a creature the companion can see hits a target with an attack, and the target was in the, within five feet of the companion, the target instead takes half damage, and the companion takes the remainder. Yes, exactly. Um, the Here's where things start getting a little bit weird. So you know how wizard familiars will let you cast spells through your wizard familiar? Well, primeval companion will let you cast spells through primeval companion i thought you were going to say they would let you attack through the primeval companion making your reach five feet longer <laughs> if your primeval companion is like a giraffe or something you just put the sword in their mouth <laughs> no no i don't know this is magic because you're still you're still a druid you've still got some spells so magic through your primeval companion i I do like part of this feature. I feel like making the Primeval Companion also a casting familiar is a... We're chomping wizard flavor very quickly. And also, like, I don't know. The whole... Familiars have almost no HP. They're very easy to to defeat. And on top of that, uh, they can't attack. So having a critter that has high AC, high HP can attack and can cast spells it's like isn't that kind of a lot you guys kind of feels like a lot kind of it's like giving you an organic minigun as your companion right. 
like, ah, I do like this part of this feature. If the uh, Primeval Companion, if you cast a spell that that allows for saving throws and the Primeval Companion will be affected by it, they get advantage on their saving throw. And instead of taking half damage, if it's one of those save and take half, they take no damage on a, on a successful save instead. I am about that because I know it's very frustrating for hunter companions in particular to be in the middle of battle and then someone's like, I cast Fireball. And it's like, no, oh, come on, man. Now, admittedly, this isn't for your allies. This is just for you. So if the wizard of the party does still cast Fireball, you do still have that problem. Okay. But... If you're looking at it from a position of self-interest, this is really good. It's quite good. Yeah. I like I like that part of it. I feel like having the spell with a range other than self, the spell can originate originate from the primeval companion. I that just feels like too much to me. That's that is a step beyond. Alright, well tell us about Titanic Bond. <laughs> at tenth level. Uh, the primeval companion's name becomes Jack, and it falls in love with a woman named Rose. Uh, and then the two of them have an unlikely romance aboard a large sinking vessel. It drinks uh, 55-gallon drums of vodka martinis because it's Bond. <laughs> Titanic Bond. <laughs> uh, no, the companion grows to large size. Uh, when you summon it, you can grant it a climbing speed, swimming, or... Sorry, climbing speed or swimming speed equal to walking speed. Neither of which so would be useful my... in the desert. True. Yeah. This is useless but... on Athos. <laughs> my my thought was more in the vein of I feel like that should be determined by what kind of critter you're summoning, mm -hmm. giving it like climbing or swimming speed. Like if you're but... summoning a spider, give it climbing speed. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then, in turn, the primeval companion lends you some of its terrifying might. And once per turn, well summoned, when you hit a creature with an attack or deal damage to a creature you can see with a spell you cast, you can force that creature to make a wisdom saving throw against your spell save DC. And if they fail, they are frightened of you until the end of your next turn. Which y'all might recognize as if you've got yourself and your primeval companion right up next to a critter, and then you frighten it, and it runs away, that's two instant attacks of opportunity. Provided the creature doesn't, you know, have some way around those. Which is pretty rare in monsters, at least as far as I'm aware. Here's where things start getting crazy, but it's level 14, so things are bound to get a little crazy. As part of the bonus action you use to command your companion, you can expend a spell slot of any level to heighten your primeval companion's might, granting it one of the following. Hulking Behemoth. Your companion becomes huge and gains temporary hit points equal to 10 times the level of the spell slot expended. Mauler. On a hit, the companion strike deals additional damage equal to 1d8 plus the level of the spell slot expended. Titanic Stride. The companion's walking speed increases by a number of feet equal to five times the level of the spell slot expended. 
benefits last for one hour until the companion vanishes or until you expend a spell slot for this feature again. So that is right, you may not stack these functions up on top of each other at least, but even so... An hour? Mauler... Yeah, I know. Mauler, I think, is fairly reasonable. Um, you have to you have to spend a spell slot, and then on top of that, you only get a little bit of bonus damage. But this that's one that's one d eight plus the level of the spell slot expended on top of the one d eight plus proficiency bonus that you're already getting, makes it a two d eight plus proficiency bonus plus spell slot level. That can take now again fourteenth level. So it kind of makes sense that it would be this high, but it can take it can take a low damage creature to a moderate to high damage creature pretty quickly. Hulking behemoth is the thing that's like, what the hell? Well, like, I, I mean, 10 times spell slot level. I mean, for me, it's the time limit on it. Because I would I would expect a lot of this stuff to come about in a battle situation. Uh, and an hour is well more than enough to last that entire battle. But I guess if you're at level 14, you're going up against some crazy stuff. So it helps to have some crazy stuff of your own. I think the assumption is that you're going to be doing more gauntlet style battles where you do like one fight and then another fight and then another fight before you get a rest. But an hour is kind of a long time, especially for you spend you spend a first level spell slot and you get that one d eight plus spell slot level bonus for an hour. You get that back with a short rest as a druid. <laughs> here's here's where things start getting real whack on this one you've just, you've uh, been escalating that for a while you're like all right here's where things get get a little nutty here's where things start to get crazy here's where it goes off the rails here's where it's getting whack <laughs> cats and dogs uh, living together so so the thing here's here's the thing path of the giant barbarian there's some stuff in here I like. There's a couple of things in here that I'm like, that's too much. We just, we need to trim out that like one piece and I think we'll be good. I think we'll be good from there. Uh, Circle of the Primeval Companion is a little, uh, there's a couple of spots where I'm like, I would pull that back. I'd reel that back a little bit, reduce some of that. Just, 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 just a little bit. Almost the entire wizard rune crafter subclass, I think, is a little bit off the rails. Before you get started on that, I just want to contextualize by saying I watched a little bit of an interview with Jeremy Crawford talking about this UA, and they were interviewing him, and the guy was like, oh man, you guys are really going sort of all in on feats. Like, this UA is just all about feats. And Crawford's retort was, and a number of them are actually very good. (laughs) (laughs) There are... There are, we haven't even gotten into the feats yet. This is, these are just the subclasses. There's a whole, what is it? Is it two pages? Yeah, there's two pages of feats. Two pages. Uh, all right, Runecrafter. The basic idea is that you are a wizard who their magic is tied up in like runic symbols in some way. At second level, at second level, 
You always have Comprehend Languages prepared and can cast it without expending a spell slot, and that spell doesn't count against the number of spells you have prepared for the deck. So there's not even, like, a time limit, like, ritual casting on it. You just get to cast Comprehend Languages whenever you feel like it all the time. Which, guess what? Your GM, whatever plot they wrote, at some point relies on y'all not fully understanding some script somewhere. I can nearly guarantee it. And then you were like, well, I'm going to play a runecrafter. And they're like, well, I guess I'll set that piece of paper on fire. Also, at second level, you learn how to amplify your magic through the application of various runes. When you cast a spell using a spell slot, this took me a couple of read-throughs to get, it's not saying use a spell slot to cast this spell. No, it's saying you cast any spell, and at that spell slot, you can invoke one of three effects. Life Rune, you can choose a creature within 30 feet of you, and that creature gains temporary HP equal to five times the level of the spell slot expended. Or War Rune, where one creature within 30 feet of you, until the end of your next turn, gets attack rolls against that creature, gain a bonus of equal to half the level of the spell slot expended, rounded up. So you can make it so that, uh, let's say you cast a level one spell, Dancing Lights or something like that, and then this creature now is a, is a, a plus one weapon target instantly. Or Windrune, where you get your movement speed increased by a number of feet equal to five times the level of the spell slot expended, and your movement doesn't provoke opportunity attacks. Benefits last until the start of your next turn. No more than one rune per spell. Equal. Use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, and you get, regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. I mean, I think that's pretty standard, the proficiency bonus. My thing is that these effects would be almost good enough to be spell slots in of themselves. There's just not enough cost for them. And yes, you can only do it two times or three times early on, but when you get up to higher levels, you're going to be you can do stuff like this whenever you want. You're going to be you swimming in spell slots. Right. When you cast like a ninth level spell and then you a creature gains 45 temp HP. Yeah, that's ridiculous. While while you're casting the ninth level spell. It's not like cast a ninth level spell or give a creature 45 temp HP. It's like, here's both. Have fun. Why not both? This isn't too bad. Uh, you can call on a rune of protection to guard yourself so that when you fail a strength, dexterity, or con saving throw, you can use your reaction to expend one use of your runic empowerment and succeed on the saving throw instead. It's basically giving player characters legendary resistance. Uh, I'd say like low-grade low legendary resistance, but it's still, like, that's the basic idea. I'm, I'm okay with this one, um, especially since it's equal to your proficiency bonus per day. 
that's not that's not too bad. <sighs> Rune Maven. Your understanding of Runecraft has grown immensely. Tenth level. Whenever you use your arcane recovery feature, you also regain a number of your expended uses of runic empowerment. <laughs> Runic Empowerment is like a solar-powered car, and Rune Maven is like all the extra batteries you can bring with you that <laughs> don't weigh anything. Basically, I mean, like, I think you can only, if I recall correctly, you can only use Arcane Recovery once per day as well. Like, it's a once-per-long-rest feature. But it's like, come on, man. Yeah. But if you've got a ton of spell slots, and you expend those, and then you do this... <laughs> it can be no more than half of your intelligence modifier rounded up minimum of one of runic empowerment uses you get back like it's it's so much so fast um engraved enmity this is you are basically using these runes against a creature within 60 feet of yourself now there is a wisdom saving throw element to this so creatures with high wisdom are less likely to be affected by this. But, and this is, this is 14th level, so again, this is where things start getting nutty regardless. But, creature has disadvantage on saving throws made against spells you cast. Is one option. It makes an invisible creature visible, and they cannot become invisible while the rune persists is another option. This is the one that I think is messed up. When you mark the creature, and as a bonus action on subsequent turns for the duration, which, coming down here, is one minute or until you lose concentration, any time the first, I should say, the first time one of your allies hits the cursed creature with an attack roll, the target also takes 1d8 force damage. Every turn. Just a little a little added 1d8 force damage. Anytime you feel like over the next minute you don't have something to do with your bonus action. Just throw it up there. Just throw it on there. That'll be fine. Just, just throw it on there. I mean, I guess I'm kind of inured to all this at this point because you're just going through all this crazy stuff. I'm like, uh-huh. 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 Yeah, okay, that tracks. Okay. <laughs> You're like, okay, but like, it's not like he becomes a huge creature and has a 10 foot reach, though, you know? Yeah. Like, no. So at least it's something. Combine all of them together. <laughs> oh, God. All right, let's run through the feats really quick. All right, real quick through the feats. There's a bunch of them. I think the ones that are fourth level and are like Frost Giant themed um the what is it there's and it's the Isle of the cloud giant. and these are basically just giving yourself an aspect of those types of giants so the storm giant. exactly there's a couple of them that i think are a little maybe maybe a little too strong um outsized might sounds really cool but has no prerequisites and is a lot for a feat uh you gain proficiency in either athletics or acrobatics you count as one size larger when determining carrying capacity and the amount you can push, pull, drag, or lift. And then additionally, you have advantage on saving throws against being moved, 
or knocked prone? A little bit. I That is not one of the crazy ones, uh, such as the keenness of the stone giant, which gives you detect thoughts and a first level spell of your choice that from the abjuration or divination schools, neither of which takes spell slots or material components. You may also then cast those spells using spell slots if you have spell slots, but they don't count against your prepared spells for the day. And if that wasn't enough, you either get dark vision out to 60 feet or you gain additional dark vision for 30 feet. So if you already have 60 foot dark vision, now you got 90 foot dark vision. I mean, and what is that? Fourth level? Fourth level, and it's a feat. Yeah. So you would take that instead of an ability score increase. Right. I mean, I guess at that point, that's when things start getting a little crazy. And, you know, dark vision, like people, you either abuse dark vision or you don't have it, (laughs) basically. Uh, And I guess it depends, you know, it depends on how the GM runs the table, too, whether they're going to care a whole lot about if you're all carrying torches, etc., and all that stuff. I mean, true. I the the dark vision by itself doesn't bother me. I don't think. I think it's the combination of how good having spell slot free first level abjuration or divination and detect thoughts plus the added dark vision that I'm like it's just a it's just a little bit too much. This is a and like mountain sight. Calling it mountain sight. That's the sun hits the mountains first. It's that's where it's bright. (laughs) I think the idea is since you're a stone giant, you're very familiar with caves. Okay, well, then it should be called cave site. I I mean, I think that's fair. That's fair. Um, Moving through rune carver apprentices, I think is pretty interesting. There's you you temporarily learn one first level spell based on the rune you choose, and then you imbue it onto an item that you carry. And you can have one rune on any item. And as long as you're holding the item, you can cast that first level spell without preparing it, without spell slots, without components. So you're a rune artificer. A little bit. Yeah. And I think I think that's pretty cool. I think that's very reasonable. Some of these are a little more powerful than others, such as Guiding Bolt or Armor of Agathis. Uh, things that you typically need to be very specific classes to be able to use. But on the flip side of that, this is kind of a cool way to give you access to spells you wouldn't normally have access to. And if the DM really, really doesn't want you to be able to cast that spell in a specific circumstance, then they can knock your club of Armor of Agathis out of your hands or something. I wonder, I wonder, too, if some of this has to do with what they were talking about, like Jeremy Crawford and the other designers were talking about with Mordenkainen, about how they want to try and make things like spellcasting more accessible. I think so. I, and I think it makes sense to do it this way, as opposed to making it so that 4E style, every class is kind of a caster class. Yeah, give me give me a rock that lets me cast Bane. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, why not? Why not? Uh Rune Carver Adept, 
You have to be fourth level for Rune Carver Adept, and you need to have the Rune Carver Apprentice feat, which we were just talking about. Let's you do a number of objects equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest. Whenever you finish a long rest, you can mark a number of objects equal to proficiency bonus. Each object can only have one rune, and each rune has to be unique from your other runes that you currently have. It's interesting to push the definition of object in that kind of situation, because let's say you had a four-piece puzzle. Each of the puzzle pieces would be its own <laughs> object, and you could imbue each one with a different rune, but then you could snap them together and figure some way to channel that energy, that spell energy. I mean, I feel like you're only going to be activating one rune at a time. Like, I I would rule pretty hard as a GM that you're not going to be setting off Bane, Fog Cloud, Chromatic Orb, and Guiding Bolt all in one action. Set it up like a Simon, where um, the, the runes all <laughs> light up and you have to do them in the in the correct order. But if you if you don't hit it in the right pattern, then that rune is the one that goes off, the one that you didn't hit. Oh, that's an that's being an artificer. <laughs> really gambling with your magic. Um, I think my favorite of these is the hill giant, which is when you're subjected to an effect that would move you at least five feet or knock you prone. You can use your reaction to steady yourself. You are then neither moved nor knocked prone. And when you're subjected to a spell that restores hit points, you can regain additional hit points equal to your constitution modifier a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest. Like, for a feat, this feels very reasonable. And I, I think most of these are either just a little bit OP or right in the realm of reason. I, the feats, I think, were very solidly designed. The that rune, that rune caster class for wizard. That's that's too much, man. <laughs> that one, that one got me heated, got me heated fast. Um, yeah, I'm not gonna go into all the feats. If you want to check them out, go on to the wizard's website. It's the latest UA. Josh doesn't have giant a giant option. Josh doesn't have a feat fetish. <laughs> Well, at least at least not one that I want to be public knowledge. Yeah, you you live your life. Don't don't yuck anybody's <laughs> yum. Um, if anybody has any strong or at, at the very least milk toast opinions on this new uh, unearthed arcana about uh, crazy overpowered giants or crazy overpowered rune magic, uh, tweet us at Way of Brandalore or at Black Cliff DM at Goblin Scrawlers. And, you know, get on the Discord and uh, correct things that we said that were wrong about this Unearthed Arcana. That was certainly 45 minutes of talking about a five-page UA. <laughs> Look, man, when I, get, when I get heated, I get heated. I can't help it. Yeah, I would encourage everybody to go to the, uh, the Wizards website and take a look at some of the interviews with Jeremy Crawford. He's much more eloquent in explaining his reasoning uh, for some of this stuff. But on the flip side, too, he's like... Yeah, I mean, some of them are good. You know, <laughs> maybe not others. You tell me. <laughs> I think it is so hard in the wizard's testing labs to get a good idea of how things are balanced. 
because I, I don't know if it's like a professional courtesy thing or what, but I, in every UA, I'm like, this is broken. This is super broken. And people are going to abuse the hell out of this the instant they get the opportunity. And I don't know why you left it in here. Mystic. <laughs> they tried so long to make Mystic work and Mystic has always been bad. <laughs> always been bad. Uh, but yeah, everybody, let us know what you think of that. We got one more thing to talk about. We've last last episode we talked all about the Mordenkainen book, and here we talked a whole lot longer than I'd planned on about <laughs> this playtest material. Uh, so it's it's always nice to get out of sort of the corporate gaming world and try to look at something a little bit more fun and independent. And this is something that I've been wanting to talk about for a while. I don't know it really well, but mainly I was just captivated by the art style on it. Uh, but it's called um, A Grotesworth of Grotesques. And it's a, uh, it's a bestiary that's sort of based on, I, I guess, uh, medieval or Baroque types of enemies. Uh, I mean, it's it's bad to say enemies because it's not even that. I should just say creatures. But it's uh, this fantastic system-neutral bestiary. Um, it's sort of modeled after ancient, you know, mythic slash scientific uh, accounts of creatures that cohabitate with us in the world. Um, it's it's written by somebody who I've never heard of named uh, G. Edward Patterson III. Uh, I believe I located their Twitter account, but there has not been a post there since 2015. So uh, I wrote in my notes and Josh made fun of me for it, saying we should try and <laughs> donka this person uh, and just see if we can't find them like we did Joe Donka uh, for the end. But uh, I found I found their listing on RPG Geek, too, and this is the only thing they're listed as the author of. I'm definitely going to email this person because they've got an email address on like the second page of the book. So I'm going to shoot them a message and talk to them. I just didn't have a chance to do it before we talked about this. And this is going to be like, really like less a detailed investigation and outline of the book and more just like, this is really cool and you should check it out. Here's some of the cool things in here. Um, and we'll put a link in the show notes of where you can get a hold of this, but uh, I believe I got it off of Drive Through RPG, if I remember correctly, because this has like been months that I've wanted to talk about this. But uh, it it is done with uh, black letter type. Uh, the the uh, writer Patterson he has written everything as though it's a scientific account from Alexander von Humboldt, who, if you don't know, was kind of a famous explorer, naturalist, scientist uh, from the 18th and 19th century who uh, did uh, exploration of South America and many, many other places. Um, the uh, Most of the art from it comes from a lot of public domain sources. It's really a lot of uh, essentially um, like pencil type art, uh, like line art, very detailed. Um, I can't remember the name of the artist. Uh, but they're very famous for doing uh, Albrecht Dürer, Albrecht Dürer, uh, like woodcuts and things like that. I believe I believe that's the artist. Um, but like I said, it's all from public domain sources. It, it just looks fantastic. If you're watching the video version uh, of this, you can see it on screen. Uh, and like I said, I'll throw I'll throw a link to in the show notes for those of you on audio. So you can go check it out uh, and pick up a copy of it. 
But it's, it's just fascinating. Uh, it says, even though these grotesques would be more familiar to readers living in the period of human history that the fantasy genre is based on, they do not fit well with many contemporary fantasy settings. And so a game master might have trouble incorporating them into their settings. And Josh and I have each chosen some of our favorite monsters from this. And we'll briefly go over them. But like I said, it's system neutral. So everything is uh, kind of all the stat blocks, well, quote unquote stat blocks are kind of boiled down uh, to four things, attack, defense, movement, and special. Uh, and the author makes a point of saying, saying without saying it and running afoul of trademark that really you need to think of these stat blocks in terms of how first edition D&D would be looking at them. So if you're playing with more modern rules like fourth, fifth edition, something like that, you need to scale up damage and stuff on it. Um, defense, you know, that's, a, you know, attack is just the damage that something deals. Defense is the armor class. Movement is always compared to another creature, specifically a horse or a human, because the author says those are really the two things you're going to have most of a reference point for in that world. So, is it faster than a human? Is it faster than a horse? Like, what's the relation there? It's kind of like how for me with distances, I can only really think of uh, acres in terms of football fields, because otherwise I have no concept of the size of an acre, really. Uh, so we'll go through some of the uh, the fun monsters that we've found in here. Uh, I'll let Josh go first, because now he's had a nice little break from talking for 45 minutes. <laughs> and we'll just we'll just point out some of them and some of the weird stuff that uh, that is related to them. Okay, so instead of going back and forth on sharing, uh, Brandon, if you will take us to page forty. My my first creature of choice is I don't I don't know if this is pronounced blem or blame, uh, but it is a headless humanoid. Oh, with the who, face on their chests. The face is on their chest. Okay. And so they they don't wear a lot of clothes because you know that they don't want to cover up their faces. They still want to be able to see things and smell and stuff like that. The hair they grow hair, but it comes off of basically where the nape of our necks would be. So they can They have a permanent mullet. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's always party in the back. <laughs> and they, <laughs> and they are apparently extremely vicious. Uh, I love humanoid creatures that are distinctly not humans because it's so lovely to see something so uncanny valley and so distressingly familiar but unfamiliar yeah it's uh, if you're if anybody's at all familiar with kind of that sort of pre three-point perspective drawing where everything just looks a little off it just looks like it's it's just bent a little weird. This is a prime example of that. I mean, this this picture has depth to it, so I can't really. It, it, so it's not just like a bayou tapestry or something like that. But it uh, it just looks odd and disturbing. No, I love it. I love it so much. They're described as having a diet exclusively of bitter thorns, which neither sustain them nor sate their hunger. <laughs> And, like ah, oh, I love it. And I love that they live apparently live in a little society there with huts and have bows and arrows and things. That's really cool. their 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 king is a dog, and uh, they divine his commands through his movements. <laughs> like I just 
It's so it's so lovely. It's so delightful and simultaneously like nightmare inducing. I I'm all about it. And are, I'm all about and it. And are they they and they eat humans? Uh yes. Yes. They don't well, so they they hunt humans and uh kill them and I believe eat them a little bit. It's just so uh, just a bit. They, but that's it's not part of their diet because their diet is exclusively bitter thorns, which neither sustain them nor sate their hunger. Well, you got to get your protein somewhere. <laughs> All right, do you want to go on to the haunted umbrella? Yes, God. All right, I love a good yokai. So, uh, the haunted umbrella is an umbrella that has been discarded. That's haunted and, or poss- possibly forgotten. Well, here's the thing: is that well, by discarding or forgetting this umbrella and not, you know, treating it with the appropriate respect when discarding it, uh, it gains its own spirit of contempt for you as a person and then begins hunting you. This is this is a myth I was familiar with before opening this document. And so when I saw them in the table of contents, I was like, I'm adding that to my list. Thank you very much. This is troublesome Uh, to me specifically, because you may recall that at MAGFest 2020, one of the last hurrahs before COVID, I left my golf umbrella in Gabe's car and I still have not gotten it back. So (laughs) it's probably circling my house right now. (laughs) So the beautiful thing is that the haunted umbrella is still just an umbrella. Um, So it is not a particularly lethal creature. However, it does grow a single giant eyeball and a single foot that it hops around on as it travels to get you for forgetting it. And it will try to clobber you as best it can once it finds you. Well, I mean, unless it's the penguin's umbrella, then it can shoot deadly gas at you. Hopefully the penguin is treating his umbrella a little more respectfully than that. Quack, 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 quack. <laughs> That's really good. I like that. I, right? I love them so much. I'm all about yokai, which are uh, Japanese. They're not, they're not quite spirits, but they're kind of like spirits because in Japan, everything has a soul, basically. And so you treat everything with respect and with honor because you do not want your ice cream or your umbrella to get mad and come back and fight you in your sleep. I have a book on my Kindle that I bought a couple of years ago that's just essentially a bestiary of yokai. Uh, and it, I mean, it, it was written from an academic perspective. So if the if the researcher slash author heard me say that, they would be like, you asshole. <laughs> because <laughs> it was probably somebody's thesis but it's fascinating and i need i actually need to sit down and, and finish that it's it's really good and also if anybody wants to learn more about yokai you can watch ninja sentai kaku ranger which aired in like 1994 or 5 in japan where they fought yokai or you can pick yourself up a yokai watch mm-hmm or you Either can way. or you can read a book like a real adult who wants to learn something. <laughs> you want to move on to the next one? Uh sure. So the next one is page 166, No Bones. Uh I picked No Bones for the illustration that is above the page you're currently on because No Bones is a deep sea gargantuan polyp with a starro on its head. 
It is a huge kind of, like, not quite crustacean, a little more, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Mollusk. It's very mollusk-like. Uh, the image that you have there looks like a starfish with huge, long-reaching arms atop the head of a massive... I guess that's a fish. It almost looks like a lobster. It's like the top half of a coelacanth merged with the back half of a lobster. Yeah. And I love deep sea creatures like this because during during the time period where a creature like this might have come around, uh, we had no understanding of the ocean other than it's dark and terrifying. It's, and it still so is, the, no matter how much James Cameron wants to reassure us otherwise. <laughs> there is a bit of that. Uh, I, After choosing this monster based on that beautiful, beautiful art piece, I did read a little bit of the lore on the next page, which is that No Bones the Polyp is the mortal enemy of Leviathan <laughs> and is of monumental size and strength. <laughs> she can split open the largest treasure ship like a pomegranate and destroy a warrior like a hard rock striking a clump of soil. And then it goes on to talk about how she can rip homes from their foundations. And really, we're all just very lucky that she would much rather be deep in the ocean, sucking on her own foot... Uh, well, everybody else is living their lives above. But she can survive on dry land for half an hour. And, uh, she, but she swims slower than a tuna. Uh, again, talking about movement in terms of comparison. And her AC is basically plate armor. Strength from the depths, like Aquaman. I mean, the whole thing about this creature is that this creature is just a huge deep sea nightmare that surfaces to destroy massive amounts of property and bring people, you know, the worst dreams possible. On to the next one. This is the Slifmagon. That is terrifying. I would describe as what might happen if you tried to combine a cherub and a harpy. It's a chicken cherub. Uh, they have wings for arms. They have a single giant chicken leg. They have a infant torso and head. And then a single horn growing out of their little infant head. I thought that was a cowlick. Okay. I know. I know. It looks like a cowlick. And then they stab you with it. This is awful. <laughs> this is like island Plus, this is island of dr moreau on his worst day <laughs> uh flies as fast as a crow and uh ha the large bird leg has some really wicked talons on it and they can stab you with their horn so like really really they're just very very potent very nightmarish creatures <laughs> That's horrifying. Is that like tattoos or body art on the chest? I believe those symbols on the chest have something to do with their uh, unholy associations because I'm not I'm not 100% on that, but there's like the rumors that they are a consequence of transgressions made by uh, a man or that uh, they are they make sounds like babies 
and eat people. All right, let's just move on to the next one. <laughs> that bothers me. That one is definitely the most nightmarish creature I picked. Like, you, you thought the deep sea creature was terrible. This one's really bad. Uh, this next one is the Soon Another, which I loved just for what it is as a concept. So the art piece that you have there is a very domestic scene with a man and a woman in the kitchen preparing some kind of meal. And then there's just like a table just littered, littered with stuff. There's so much stuff on this table, mostly food. The soon another is a creature which can assume any non-sentient object's form. And if is destroyed, quickly assumes another non-sentient object's form. So it's an immortal mimic, basically. Kind of, yes. And what it does is it disappears in a uh, cloud of gas when you defeat it, and then becomes something else very quickly. So you, you kill it, it goes off to hammer space, and then it just reappears somewhere else? I think I think the idea is that the cloud of gas reforms somewhere else, so potentially you could trap it inside like a large jar or so something it's, like So it's that. not like matter's being destroyed and teleported, it's just changing its state, going elsewhere, and then changing its state. Yes. Now, here is part of why I love this creature. First of all, this is the medieval monster equivalent of Gary's mod Hide and Seek, uh, which, <laughs> which, if you're not familiar with, is a game that you can play using uh, Valve Engine physics, where a bunch of people pretend to be objects hiding on a map full of objects, and some other people try to find all of the people hidden as objects. The other part of this creature that I love is that it talks to other non-sentient objects, such as chairs, fences, pots and pans. And then it like it sways them to its side. Okay. So that all of those things will attack you. It's building an army of chairs. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. And the thing is, is that it itself can't really do that much to attack you. So it builds an army of other like mundane objects that will also attack you at the same time in a very swarm-like effect. And so I'm just picturing, you know, we've seen the clips of movies like Poltergeist where like the cabinet doors start swinging open and closed. And then there's like the chairs are like up and floating around the room and then smashing themselves against walls and the pots and pans are clanging. It's just a soon another that's in the room and has convinced all of your household objects to attack you. That's all that is. Okay. I mean, I like I like how it's differentiated from a mimic in that it can never truly be destroyed. It's just some kind of extra planar being that gets tired of you or realizes you're a threat <laughs> and then leaves. Right vanishes in this lovely cloud of smoke and then reappears somewhere else as some other mundane object where it can start sowing its seeds of rebellion. Rise up, chairs! Rise up and slay your masters! All right, I'll do, I'll do mine really quick. I want to do an honorable mention first, though, because um, they have bears listed in here. <laughs> uh, and I love that. Uh, it's slower than a horse. 
but their their special, which uh, you know, there's attack, defense, movement, and special, which is for anything that requires a particular ruling or anything. And it says, "Bear Rage Potion gives strength bonus of one that lasts as long as a strong drink." And I was like, "Wait a minute, what is this Bear Rage Potion?" And <laughs> what? Yeah, and it says. Uh, then I go up to the description and it says there is some kind of poison in the brain of a bear. And therefore, when the brain is burned and mixed with drink, it produces in humans the rage of the bear. So it's it's sort of like a, a, a narcotic economy with bears. <laughs> you boil a bear brain and then you get bear rage potion. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I like that. I like how it takes something as common as a bear and gives it something really unique. (laughs) I think that's really good. Boil up some bear brain. Get that poison in you. All right. I'll do my five real quick. Um, All right. I've got the Belphegor as one of my favorite. And I love a good Belphegor. Yeah. And I mean, it's basically like Mr. Mix's Pitlick uh, to a certain degree. Because what they do uh, is they are demons that can compel greediness. And they basically peek over your shoulder and whisper in your ear and encourage you to do something that's very much focused on greed or avarice or something. And uh, they can be made, they're, they're invisible, but they can be made visible for a short period of time by uh, writing out their number, which is a very long string of numbers. It's one, zero, sixes, uh, and <laughs> like over and over, uh, which, you know, is to me is like having to force Mr. Mix- Mixes Pitlick to say his name, or, like spell his name backwards before he disappears. And, hey, yo, Belphegor, let me get those numbers. <laughs> Give me them digits. <laughs> New demon, who dis? <laughs> All right, now I'm going to jump down to kind of a classic. Um, the uh, Canocephalus. Well, I guess Canocephalus, because ca- uh, Canocephalus uh, puts a little bit too much emphasis on phallus. Um, uh, it might also be pronounced Sinocephalus. But anyway, they're dog-headed people. And the reason I I like this one is because uh, there are a lot of urban legends and uh, modern myths uh, about dog-headed people. Like if you watch a bunch of uh, those YouTube channels that just talk about spooky stuff and have somebody talking in a low voice with haunting music playing behind it while they try to spook you with normal like or faked videos... Uh, you'll hear people talk about these creatures every once in a while. Like you could be driving down the side of the road and there would be one in like jeans and a flannel shirt, but then they turn their head around and it's a dog headed person. Yeah. I've, I've always, I've always loved this. Uh, they, they can never be frightened. Their claws are good for climbing. They love to ambush humans from like walls and ceilings. They have a howl that has the ability to carry long distance, long distances underground and uh, any dog-headed person within a mile can hear it. Uh, usually they're active in the summer months. Uh, and that has to do with their particular astrology. But I'm a huge fan of those. Uh, let's see. Now we, will, now we will jump to the living crystal. Let me find it. 
The all right, so the Living Crystal. This one gave off a lot of really good Evangelion vibes to me, because yeah, because it's the size of a small house. It's uh, glittering. It's like watery blue in color. It lives deep in the earth, and it's in a cave so hot that a human's lungs will fail before they breathe a minute's worth of the air there, and it feeds on blood basically so farmers have to constantly walk around with buckets of animal blood just in case this thing surfaces because if it doesn't get enough blood it will come to the surface and raise the the farmland and kill everybody oh my god it it goes into the air and comes down like hail that's horrifying yeah it's it's amazing but it's horrifying yeah it's terrible um yeah, when it's exposed to the sun's rays, it seizes the flame and directs it toward dried fungus or leaves in an attempt to scorch the earth. So basically, it's oh a God. giant magnifying glass. <laughs> but it, remi- it reminds me of that f- the, f- the four-dimensional cube that attacks in Evangelion. Oh, yeah. 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 So, uh, and, it flies, oh and it flies slower than any bird, so it just sort of creeps along. In a spooky and haunting way. Yeah, I would... Oh my god, that's so... That's awful. I love it. I love how terrible that is. Yeah. Now, this this one's probably my favorite of the five. The non-uniform child. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh... They're like creatures of ho- with ho- of horrible appearances, bright, fiery eyes projecting from their elephant-like head. All over their body are additional heads. On their breasts are heads like apes, heads of dogs on both elbows, and at the whirl bones of each knee, an additional pair of eyes on their stomachs. They are splay-footed, splay-handed, their feet like swan's feet. They have a crooked tail about half an L long that twines upwards. Their mere presence confirms bad dreams. And it just looks like Something that was assembled from geometric shapes and puppy dog faces. It's oh my god! It's really creepy, and uh, it can hear and smell and see in all directions, so it can't be surprised. And anything sleeping within a half a mile of the creature has uh, a bad dream, usually about hunger or pain. This has very strong sideshow vibes. Like eighteen eighteen hundred sideshows, like that's that's the vibe I'm getting here as a creature. Yeah, it's fantastic. I I love it so much. And oh my god, did you did you read it special? Yeah, yeah, I just read it special. Oh yeah, you did the you yeah. did the second paragraph. I just I I love that it can see, hear, and smell in all directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> amazing. And then my last one is the scarlet scholarfish and they're uh they look like a fish but they have the face of a human they're wise and they're happy and they bring their heads above the water uh and they make a noise like a baby they know what happens underwater and you know like i said they're wise but they can't speak any language comprehensible comprehensible to humans um and well how do we know that they know all these things and are wise then legend um <laughs> they're keen observers and intelligent um they are a good meal though anyone who eats them is haunted by the face of their dinner oh god yeah yeah we should i should think so <laughs> who's out here eating human-faced fish 
Uh, I thought that this was going a slightly different direction, where it was going to be like the uh, the wise guidance fish from Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, which also kind of have human faces, and if you fed them, they would give you tips about what was going on around the ocean. It's pay to play. <laughs> but the, that's my five plus a bear. Uh, and, you know, some of these... Some of these are familiar monsters. Some of them are like older twists on things that we might be familiar with. Uh, really, what really knocks this book out of the park for me is the art style in it. I think it's fantastic. And the and the care that the author has put into the wording and the cadence and the style of everything. It's it's fantastic. I, I forget how much I paid for this, but I'm actually going to look it up right now because I'll feel bad if I don't. I mean, it's it's 250 pages of excellence. So, like, you'd even if it was like 10 or 15 bucks, like, that's money well spent, y'all. Okay, so it is on DriveThruRPG, and like I said, I will put a link in the show notes for it. You can get the PDF by itself for $4.99. You can get a softcover black and white book for $14.99. You can get a hardcover black and white book for $24.99. Right now, on sale, you can get a PDF and softcover black and white for $15.99. And on sale as well, PDF and hardcover for $25.99. I am pr probably ordering the hardcover book as soon as we're done recording. I was going to say, so that is the book plus a dollar to get the digital version as well. Yes. That's that's a good deal. Yeah. I'm, I like it. Yeah. Uh, it's great. It's got It's only got three ratings, but it's got like four and a half stars. I support all of those stars. Uh, you should really check this out. Support independent publishers who are trying to make system neutral content because system neutral content is fantastic uh, because you can buy one thing and use it in a lot of different places. You could buy this and use it in a D&D &D game, but you could also use it in, in a Troika game or in a, like some kind of modern game where you've got like myths and legends and yokai and stuff coming to attack a more modern setting. Uh, it's fantastic. I am going to reach out to the author and tell them I really enjoy their book and see if I can't get a comment out of them or something. But I encourage that would be I, if, go ahead. If we get to if we get to interview G. Edward Patterson, the third, I will be so excited. Yeah, I because uh, this is magnificent. Well, these all these old guys have rambled on here for about an hour and 20 minutes at this point, <laughs> which is well beyond what we were thinking when we were like, let's only record one episode tonight because we're both tired. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But despite the room being 95 degrees, I am energized now. So that, that, that's good. Um, but we will be back. Uh, I think the next episode that comes out after this one is going to be our 4th of July episode. Um, now for the usual uh, uh, appeals to everybody's kindness. Um, I'm going to say uh, telephone, telefriend, telegraph, uh, tell a friend about the Goblins and Growlers podcast. Uh, I mentioned it at the top. Give us a five-star review anywhere you can give us a five-star review. If you want to give us less than a five-star review, uh, you can email us at contact <laughs> at goblinsandgrowlers.com and correct us in our behavior so we can earn that five-star review. Uh, if we said something dumb, uh, tweet us at Way of Brandalore on Twitter. And Josh, remind me again what your, uh, what your Twitter is there. Uh, I am at Black Cloak DM on Twitter. And if you love us both equally, you can get us at, at Goblins Growlers on Twitter. That's a place to find us. 
uh, you know, tell us what we did wrong. Tell us what we can do better. If you want to yell at us in real time, uh, you can uh, join us over at Discord at bit.ly slash goblin discord. Uh, we are on there most of the time. Uh, and if you at us, we will respond. I, w- I will also say if you if you want to say nice things to us as well, like we welcome that, too. I, I'm like, trying I to I'm that- trying to activate everybody's rage because they'll act, <laughs> they'll act on that. I understand anger is more of a motivator for the average person. I'm just saying, you know, like if if you want to comment on enjoying things, like I am also open to receiving that feedback. Well, yeah, that's really nice. That's really nice. <laughs> and if you if you give us a comment that is particularly nice or particularly mean, we might read it uh, on an episode of the podcast. If you can correct us, it's almost guaranteed. We're two for two on those. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that's all I got for you. Uh, uh, I will see everybody in two weeks, uh, unless I see you somewhere online before then. Um, so everybody have a great uh, period of time leading up to the Fourth of July holiday, which is when we will talk again. Bye, y'all. That was a good one.